Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. For decades, oil has held a critical and unique place in the global economy. Many resources and commodities are claimed to be the new oil for their importance in the modern world. Is data really the new oil? What about copper or microchips? Are these claims mere sound bites, or do they indicate the emergence of new strategic commodities? Ultimately, I want to know, how can we best position ourselves as investors? And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, how did the price of oil go negative in 2020? Okay, let's get into it. So it's unquestionable that oil has fueled much of our economic growth over the past 100 years or so. But now we're probably coming towards the end of oil's critical role in the economy. And inevitably, people are looking for what is the new oil? What's going to be the crucial ingredient of the next economy? But before we get into that, Roman, let's just focus a bit on why has oil been so important? Well, personally, it's very important because my mother moved away from Birmingham because she married someone who is in the oil industry, who is at Birmingham University. Then she divorced him, married my dad. So my existence as half English, half Iranian is due to oil. So thank you, oil. <laughs> Are you a Brummie then? A secret Brummie? Oh, yeah. Generations of Brummies. Oh, this explains your accent off air then. That's right, Michael. Can you understand me? <laughs> Anyway, so back to oil. The point is, it's an incredibly important input to almost every aspect of our lives. Clearly, it's an energy source, so that's its primary use. You can burn it, it's very energy dense. It takes sunlight from millions of years ago and releases it very rapidly. I think the key thing is that the economics of extracting oil have become much more attractive because there's a whole infrastructure behind it. If we had to start from scratch today, I doubt we'd even consider using hydrocarbons because of the huge cost of actually extracting it. I think we just start with renewables. But still, we are where we are. We don't have control over our history. So I think that's why, at the moment, we're still very much geared towards oil and fossil fuels as a source of energy. There's also lots of government incentives from many governments to actually subsidise the extraction of oil. If it really had to stand on its own, I think it probably wouldn't be economical and we'd certainly consider alternatives much more readily. But still, I think for the next 10 years, even the next 20 years, we're not going to see the end of oil. And I suppose the key point is it's just been critical for so much of the transportation infrastructure, you know, cars, trucks, aeroplanes rely on it. And also its refined version of oil products are used in so many manufacturing products like plastics and fertilizers and even medicines, things like that. Yeah, I mean, just look around you. I mean, anywhere you are in civilization, you'll see plastics you'll see things which are created from oil, which are very hard to find substitutes for. So I think, you know, as a, as a source of raw material for plastics, it's going to be hard to find substitutes. But still, that's what we're going to have to do. You know, we don't really have a choice because it is a finite resource. And at some point, you know, it's going to become uneconomical to extract it. But I think the other point is that it's an input to so many other industries. So that's why people kind of obsess about it. And I remember when the economists at the investment bank where I worked had to make a forecast, everybody was waiting for the price of oil forecast because that literally feeds into every single economic model. And is that because of the transportation? Like it affects everything? Well, it's transportation in the case of countries which have to use it as an input for transportation, but it's also a cost for countries which are net importers of oil. So if you look at, for example, India, an EM country which is dependent on oil imports, the price of oil is really critical for determining the balance of payments, but also economic growth. 
So that's why I think, you know, really it just feeds into everything and it's kind of underpins a lot of growth models globally. And the other interesting thing about the oil market is it's kind of unique in its structure, isn't it? That there's a few key producers because oil is not equally spread geographically, obviously. And there's this cartel, OPEC, which controls a large part of the production capacity. Which has been the case for a long time, over a century. And that really is one of the key problems with oil, which is every time you fill up your car with petrol or diesel, effectively you're sending money to some quite questionable governments around the world. And I think that's a problem. And it's a problem that we've tried to kind of work around. You know, the US has stepped up its supply by creating tight oil, shale, fracking. I mean, that was a massive change in the market, right? Absolutely. I mean, they've become one of the largest producers globally. They've paid the price in terms of environmental problems, obviously, but that's a price they're clearly willing to pay. But the result is that, yeah, now they're net exporters of oil and that's completely transformed their economy. But also, I think it's going to affect the geopolitics of oil as we kind of head into the twilight years of the oil industry. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Oil has been such a geopolitical hot topic and has a huge amount of national security importance. It's driven a lot of politics around the world. Even now, it's politically sensitive, isn't it? We see what happens when gasoline prices rise in America and the president's popularity rating is pretty tightly linked in an inverse relationship. (laughs) This is what people are screaming about because that's what you see every day. You know, if you fill a car with petrol, gasoline, sorry, then people see that price and they're very sensitive to it. So it is, of course, the political topic. I mean, the petrol price in America is way below what we pay. They've got it so good they don't (laughs) realise (laughs) Yeah, what they never compare is the price per mile. They always say, oh, that's not a fair comparison. Well, what really matters is that price per mile. I don't know what the comparison is at the moment, but it's always been hugely beneficial in favour of the US versus the UK because we pay a huge amount of taxes for the oil that we use. And it's just a shame, really, isn't it, that oil is such a big contributor to climate change and destroying the planet, really. I mean, there's a massive imperative to move away from fossil fuels quickly. Yeah, I think there's no question that there has been an impact on the climate due to the burning of fossil fuels. The evidence is pretty clear. And I think the consensus among scientists is also very strong, which is quite unusual. I mean, you don't usually get that strong a consensus. So I think we've summarised why oil is so important and the slightly strange way that that market works. So what do people mean when they say some other commodity is the new oil? You hear it quite a lot. Is it just to generate clicks? Is that why we're titling this podcast as the new oil? Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but look, I mean, there are other things which feed into many other economies and which are a huge input cost to companies. So, for example, things such as data, that would be another one. I mean, you hear that all the time. I think that's the cliche one, isn't it? As data is the new oil. So I think that was coined in 2006 by a guy called Clive Humby, who worked for Tesco, actually, where he said, data is the new oil, it's valuable, but if unrefined, it cannot really be used, which is kind of similar to oil, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. You have to turn raw data into something which you can turn into actionable responses to that information. And that's a very difficult process. And companies now are kind of swamped with data, but until you make sense of it, you can't really act on it. So there's a whole industry which has grown up around it, which is data analysis experts. You know, these are the people who can create models which predict customer behaviour based on past behaviour, what kind of things they'd like to buy, for example. So recommendation engines or perhaps predicting what they're going to spend their money on in future. 
In fact, you know, I worked on these kind of models in the 2000s for retail banks. This is where you became a master in R, the programming language. <laughs> yeah, that was actually when I started using R, yeah, because I had to build models pretty quickly. I mean, thinking about data, there are some ways in which it is pretty analogous to oil. For one, almost everything in our lives now is using data, like you say, and it's driving so many business decisions. And then on the flip side, there are also harmful effects of it in a similar way to oil and national security concerns. So you can see why the comparison is made. And I think if you have got this kind of information economy, which we've now had build up, then information is going to become a really important resource. So if you look at GDP, for example, and look at how much of that comes from companies which don't create stuff, they create software. And a lot of that software is just essentially plumbing, taking information from one source and turning it into another output. That's kind of like oil refining and a plastics industry. But then there are some ways in which data really is not analogous to oil. So data is not a finite resource, which is kind of the main thing which characterizes oil. It's interesting. There's a comment by Richard Dawkins who says that we've actually had an explosion of information and that the earth has now gone information is the way he describes it, where, you know, up to a point about 30 years ago, there was almost no information created. But now if you just walk down the street, you're creating gigabytes of data. Yeah. You know, your phone's tracking where you are. You're receiving emails. You're sending texts, maybe. I'm looking at gifts of cats. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's driven the uh, information transformations, isn't it? I mean, it is kind of crazy, isn't it? We've invented this system where we can basically read any book ever written, listen to any piece of music, watch any film ever made, and we're using it to look at gifts of cats. <laughs> <laughs> and dogs. Let's not forget the dogs. I like the dog gifts. Yeah, yeah, dogs too. So I think the other point as well is that data can kind of damage the environment because one thing that we forget is that a lot of the infrastructure runs in data centres, which are very energy intensive. So indirectly, you can get pollution from information products, but it's a much less direct linkage to things like greenhouse gases, for example. So if that energy is created in a clean way, then that's not a problem. But I think the harmful effects I was referring to are more concerns around privacy. And you see what's happening in China and, and the West, let's be fair. You know, the amount of data that companies like Google hold on us can be kind of scary when an ad pops up on my phone and it knows what I was thinking. I'm like, I didn't even I didn't even type that. I was just thinking it. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I discuss things with Laura and then I see the ads pop up and I think, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but literally every device can listen to you. So in effect, this has become a kind of panopticon society in which we're just broadcasting our lives to anyone who wants to listen, if they're determined enough. You know, the phone could listen to me all day if it wanted to, but, you know, I pity the poor person who has to wade through that data. Even the algorithm I pity. You know, I mean, to. we've invited these smart speakers into our houses. Yeah. We've basically built the sort of dream of the Stasi ourselves <laughs> and paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, information security is a big deal because actually Laura's nephew is in recruitment for that industry and it's simply exploding. There's a huge demand for people who have expertise in data security. And I suppose one of the other ways in which data is not analogous to oil is that it's not reliant on the accidents of geography in the way that oil is. Yeah, any, any state can generate information. You just need these devices in order to start the process, I think. And the other thing is it's not fungible, is it? I mean, every barrel of oil is the same, more or less, whereas data 
is extremely different. No, I'd have issues with that because oil is pretty different depending on, you know, its physical properties. But certainly it isn't completely fungible. But certainly within a futures contract, yes. I mean, more or less, more than data, the difference between what I buy on the internet and the sensors in the Arctic tracking the penguins, that's pretty different data. Yeah, but oil varies a lot. You know, you can have high sulfur content, you can have very viscous oil, which is really low quality and has a much lower price. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, how about this? though data can be wrong in some way oil can't be wrong can it or yeah can it can be contaminated i guess yeah i mean oil can go off as well you know if it does uh, sit around for a long time oh well data is the new oil then (laughs) (laughs) but i see your point i see your point i mean data really is hugely varied but usually when you're doing the kind of data mining turning raw data into something which you can turn into actions then you do require certain standardization of the data So, for example, if you're trying to predict what books people like, you need information about their previous book buying history. And other data isn't really as relevant. I know what books you like. Sci-fi novels. (laughs) (laughs) And naval fiction, strangely. I love 17th century tales, things like Patrick O'Brien. Absolutely brilliant. What you want is epic boat battles in space. Well, that's effectively what it is. You know, it was Star Trek, but on the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's definitely true, isn't it, that data is the key driver of growth for a lot of companies. You look at the big tech companies, that's all been driven by their ability to collect and harness data. And it's given them enormous power too. And I think that's maybe one of the key analogies to oil is that who owns the data is an incredibly important thing. Yeah, and we've seen companies like Google really get a lot of backlash from, certainly from European countries, about privacy issues. It's interesting. I mean, it depends on the country you're from. In the UK, it seems we just don't care if people collect our private information. But I had friends from Switzerland who just simply refused to touch social media and were really careful about their personal privacy, which is annoying because if you want to get in touch with them, it's quite, it's quite tricky. <laughs> but it's a completely different mindset, but very, very strong. And, you know, I think that's why there's going to be a certain point, I think, at which people just say no no, I'm not willing to give you this information, at least not for free. And companies like Google and Apple are going to run into a brick wall and saturate their ability to mine this data. I mean, one of the key questions is, should there be public ownership of the key databases in the way that, you know, you had state oil companies in a lot of places to really, you know, use that data for the benefit of everyone? Yeah, it's interesting that there is no kind of constitutional right to do with data because usually any kind of constitutions were written before such things were even thought of. But I think any kind of new constitutions would have to have some kind of agreement about what information about us can be used by the state, but also by companies. I think that eventually will happen. And it'll take some unpleasant experiences to make it happen, usually. <laughs> but yeah. but I think we will have to certainly draw a line at some point in the future. I mean, there's always talk now about should some of these big tech companies be broken up in the way that Standard Oil was? Yeah, like Google is the example people were talking about. And Apple was another one. It does seem that they keep moving into new markets, don't they? That kind of horizontal expansion, I think, worries regulators. Yeah, so for example, Apple has just announced that it'll have a buy now, pay later type scheme. Plus, they have all the information about you from their products. So they'll be able to do a pretty good job, I suspect, of figuring out who the bad credits are. And people may not be happy about that. I'm not sure. And of course, there are other products which are likely to be controversial, such as insurance products. If they know everything about your lifestyle, they can pretty much work out where you eat, where you travel to, what you do for a hobby, 
and pretty much how you move. Yeah. The accelerometer, which is inside your phone, will tell them if you go running or, you know, if you drive too fast, if you accelerate too fast, brake too fast. All that information is available to them. I think there are some private medical insurances in the UK which will offer you a discount if you wear a sort of smartwatch and upload your daily steps to them. And my aunt's bionic. She's got a heart implant, which is actually inside her chest. But she can control the device, her heart rate, via this app. So I thought, Jesus, what happens if that gets hacked? You know, they could crash my aunt. That is a plot point on, I think it's Homeland, where they hacked the president's pacemaker or something. Some, <laughs> <laughs> I might have got the show wrong. I remember seeing it, him collapse in a fit, like, ah, my heart. So it could happen to your aunt, be careful. Yeah, a warner. I mean, the thing with data is that it's going to be the key input for AI and machine learning. Now, that is what a lot of people have claimed is really going to be the next oil. It's that the next industrial revolution will be driven by artificial intelligence. I know you're not going to like this, Michael. I want to mention Kathy Woods again. I mean, it wouldn't be an episode of Many Happy Returns without a Kathy Woods mention, <laughs> so <laughs> go for it. So the latest forecast that she's come up with is that GDP is going to grow by between 20 and 30% per year due to AI transforming our society. I mean, you use forecasts in a very generous way there. <laughs> <laughs> but the response on Twitter was just hilarious, I thought. You know, I mean, it is out there, right? But if you actually look at the paper where they describe the kind of thinking behind it, it's really interesting. Now, the basic idea here is that we're going to shift to something called artificial general intelligence. So this isn't AI, this is AGI, I guess. And there's a really nice test of it, which is not just the Turing test, where someone has to converse with a computer and not know that it's a computer. I think a really nice test is the coffee test, which is by Steve Wozniak, who was a co-founder of Apple. Was. Was, yeah. So Was says that in order to be an artificial general intelligence, a machine should be able to enter an average American house and make coffee. Now, on the face of it, that sounds ridiculous. You know, it's pretty easy to make coffee. But to have a robot go into a house, find the coffee machine, find the coffee fill it with water, work out which buttons to press. You know, that's really difficult for a computer to do. I mean, I failed this test every time I've stayed <laughs> at an Airbnb. So. But that's what I was <laughs> it's thinking. It's going to surpass me. That's what I was thinking when I read the test. I thought, I don't drink coffee, so for me it would be hard. I can't even use Laura's coffee machine. You don't drink coffee? What do you drink? Tea, of course. Okay. British Iranian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's common to both cultures, I guess. But yeah, I think I think that's a nice, interesting test of artificial general intelligence. Or another one which is more practical is that you can basically plonk down a robot into any job and it can pick it up just like a human would. You wouldn't have to program it. It would just kind of learn from just being there. I mean, I think that's easier. The coffee test, you know, you need some master robotics as well. I mean, I'm sceptical that we're anywhere near AGI, or, you know, mirroring human intelligence. But I think we're very far along in these kind of domain-specific AIs, which will start to replace a lot of jobs in the coming 20, 30 years. But the resources for that are completely different because for that, you have to have a team of specialists which look at a particular task. It could be playing chess. It could be some kind of practical task, like a robotics task. And they very specifically create an engine which can do a specific task incredibly well. Of course, it can learn from experience, but it still has to be tuned and a lot of it goes wrong and it can't learn the task properly unless you tweak certain parameters in the neural net or whatever it is that's driving it. But artificial general intelligence, if it does come about, which they think is going to happen in the next seven to ten years 
would completely crash the economy. Because for starters, you can replicate these machines at will, pretty much according to demand. So the question is, would people be happy being replaced by a robot? And I think the answer is no. I mean, I would be happy as long as they paid me still. I wouldn't be happy working with a robot. We wouldn't be able to laugh unless it had a sense of humour. And then, of course, it would be fine. That will destroy the world. <laughs> <laughs> Some sick joke goes wrong. But any any increase in demand, you can just replicate these things at will. And that would crash salaries. And it doesn't require sleep. It doesn't require food. It just requires energy to keep going. So, you know, massively disinflationary. So we probably get massive deflation, which is always a problem for the economy. So, you know, there are lots of consequences, which I don't think have really been thought through if it did come about. I mean, it sounds like that's the kind of thing that would decouple economic growth from population growth, for example, which has always been quite tightly linked up until now. But the reason why I think the GDP thing is kind of wrong is because unless the robots were themselves consumers... You know, why would we need all of these new services and goods which could be provided if our population wasn't growing? But if we were living off planet, you know, we could have unlimited expansion. And at that point, it would be fine. But when you live on one planet, there's a finite amount of demand for goods and services from the existing population. And if that's not growing rapidly, then, you know, what kinds of goods and services are they going to create, which we'd need? Robot coffee bars. But, but, you know, productivity at some point has to be for a reason. If there isn't an increase in demand from us, then, you know, what's the point? But can't the capacity to consume be raised per person? Yeah, but what can you consume? <laughs> You'd have to. I mean, we can all have our private yachts or, you know, like if you remove supply constraints and you live in a land of abundance, then we're all going to live like kings. But then you still have the problem of, you know, what can you consume? What is it you'd have more of? You know, you can only eat so much in a certain day. Well, no. Okay, Roman, you could have bespoke television programs made for every person that perfectly aligns with your taste, right? You can have this kind of completely new economy where it's hyper-personalised. But remember that it would also be cheaper to produce. So, you know, would that be necessarily more productive? Would it create a greater revenue for a particular country? (laughs) You know, those are the two competing forces, cheaper costs of production, but maybe more services. So it's really a kind of battle between those two forces. But, you know, I'm not convinced. Okay, I feel we've strayed way (laughs) off the beaten path here. (laughs) I mean, I will sign up to the basic idea that AI and machine learning is probably going to bring a great leap in productivity. But I am super sceptical that we're anywhere near AGI. Oh, I agree. I mean, I used to work with neural nets when I was a postdoc at Oxford. And, you know, we were modelling language acquisitions, so it was a quite limited task. But it's so far at the moment from these predictions. I agree. I think we're just miles off that. But I'm not a sceptic that we'll get there eventually. Like, I do think you could, in theory, replace the need for much human labour. The comparison I've heard is if you were a horse in the sort of latter half of the 19th century, you might think, oh, they'll always need horses for something. We're used for transport. We're used in farming. We're used in war. And now we don't really need horses other than to run around a track. I still remember the analyst meeting where the guy who was kind of head of the research at the investment bank introduced the idea that robots or at least software could write the analyst reports. And he said, actually, here's a report that was generated by a program. And here's a report that was generated by a human. And looking at the two, it was almost impossible to tell 
You know, it was all grammatically correct. It was purely factual. So it was saying, you know, this is the earnings of the company. It's going up by a certain amount. You know, the margins are improving, blah, blah, blah. It's the kind of stuff which analysts produce all the time. It's not very high quality. It doesn't have any particular insight. But still, it was shocking. I mean, that is what analysts produce all the time, isn't it? But these were incredibly well-played analysts. And so the room went very, very quiet when they saw that. So even these kind of writing jobs, which are thought to be creative, can, to some extent, be replaced. Yeah, I used to work in journalism, and you do see a lot of, especially financial journalism now, actually, is written by a robot, effectively. I mean, it does raise an interesting question, I guess, around intellectual property, patents, and copyright. Like, if an AI comes up with an invention, who owns that? I mean, I don't think that question's been fully answered right now. The owner of the AI, I guess. Well, it's interesting. So the only analogy I can think of is that there was a photographer whose camera was stolen in the jungle by a monkey and the monkey took a selfie. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Do you remember this? And then <laughs> it all ended up in court where the photographer was trying to get royalties from the image and he couldn't because the monkey, <laughs> there's, no co- <laughs> there's no copyright because the monkey took the picture. The law says it's got to be created by a human. Could the monkey represent itself in court? No, the monkey had no standing. So the AI would have no standing either. Well, here's the thing. Otherwise, whoever creates this AGI first is going to basically own the world. Yeah, so I wonder who that's going to be. Well, they talk of an arms race, don't they, between great powers, the new arms race. I mean, China definitely sees it that way. If you think of the amount of money they're putting into machine learning. They're putting huge resources into it. And you can see why. I can see why they want to have control over information and its analysis. Because if you do have a state which is effectively very centrally governed, then, you know, as a means of control, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Whereas in the West, you can't be seen to do that, but you get the feeling that it's actually going on anyway. So I think things like data and AI are good examples of things that will become important. But for me, they're not really analogous to oil. Something that potentially is more analogous is the copper market, which is a natural resource which is going to be key in a lot of this decarbonisation transition. So the biggest user of copper at the moment, they use about 60% of the annual supply, is China at the moment. But of course, they're going through this kind of urbanization process where, you know, they're building new cities. The rate of urbanization is about three Londons per year. So that requires a lot of wiring, a lot of copper. And, you know, that's been a big driver of demand over the last decade or even longer. But at a certain point, that's going to saturate and eventually start to tail off because you don't need to keep urbanizing. But I think the really interesting shift is going to be from non-green uses to green uses over the next decade or so. And there's a really interesting episode of Odd Lots, wasn't there, recently that, you know, they were talking about copper. Yeah, it was a great episode. And I mean, the story is kind of simple on the face of it. It's that copper is not easily substitutable, you know, in kind of way that oil isn't either. And it's going to be critical for so many of these bits of infrastructure we need to build. So it's used in things like solar panels and wind turbines. But crucially, it's massively important for electric vehicles. And I think they use around four times as much copper as traditional cars. But it was interesting when they were talking about the transition, because what they said was that the current usage, and this was an analyst from Goldman Sachs who specialises in metals, he said that the current demand annually is for 24 million tonnes, of which 22.5 million tonnes is for non-green uses. So that would be things like construction, electronics, building the grid, electricity supply, or non-electric cars. And only one and a half million tonnes, which is about 5% of the total demand, would be for green uses like electric vehicles, charging infrastructure for electric vehicles, wind and solar power. 
And as an aside, it's kind of interesting. If you look at onshore and offshore supply of energy for wind farms, which do you think uses the most copper? Offshore. Very good. Because? You've got to run longer cables. Exactly. <laughs> so they have these huge cables and they have to be really thick as well because you're carrying a huge current. So those have to be laid and they have to be resourced. So you need the copper for those. And that's a big driver of copper demand globally. I mean, here's the thing. I've seen forecasts that we need to basically double the supply of copper in the next 10 to 20 years to meet demand. And we're just so far away from that. If anything, copper supply is going to fall because we've not been bringing new mines online. Yeah, the other interesting factoid from that show, which I loved, was that no new copper mines have been approved over the last two years. So even in countries like Chile, which is like the Saudi for oil of copper, there it takes two to three years to get approval for, for a new mine because it is polluting. You know, who wants to have a copper mine on their doorstep? Plus it competes with things like water supplies with the locals because you have to wash the ore in order to make it more pure and make it more cost effective to mine. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a super tricky thing to navigate because places like Chile are also at the forefront of climate change and droughts are going to become more common and water is going to be super scarce. But in order for the price of copper to come down, the point was that you need demand destruction. But to get demand destruction from green uses, green demand, you'd have to have a colossal increase in price. So just in case people don't understand, demand destruction comes when the price of a commodity increases to incredible levels such that you just think, I'm not going to buy that thing anymore. The demand falls for it. But the problem is that cars, electric cars, copper actually makes up a fairly small fraction of the total cost of the car. So in that case, in order for the demand destruction to happen, there'd have to be a huge increase in the price of copper. So that's why they think that the price of copper is going to really surge over the next decade or so. It's an interesting argument. And I think on terms of the supply side, the argument is once copper prices really surge, then the mines that are already in existence, where you've got areas where copper is less densely concentrated in the ore, that then becomes economical to mine. So possibly you don't need so many new mines. You just can kind of better utilise the ones we have. Yeah, because there's no shortage in the crust. You know, it's a very abundant element. But I think opening the new mines is essentially the, the problem at the moment. Also raising the capital to do that because the companies themselves have just been big dividend payers. That's what investors have demanded. You know, they're milking the company for dividends rather than let them invest in new infrastructure and exploration. What's interesting is you've seen some gold miners such as Barrick Gold saying they're going to transition and also become copper miners. Oh, interesting. So they see it could be, you know, <laughs> such an important resource. This is one of the stock tips I gave Laura, which was uh, to buy the copper miners. But this was, you know, like a year ago. Why don't you give me stock tips? I don't give stock <laughs> tips usually because, you know, I'm wrong usually. But this one was a pretty good one. But I think the thing where the strategist I thought did an awful job, I don't know if his background was in physics, I guess not, but it was to do with substitution. And I think the one thing that would completely revolutionise and remove the demand for copper, the bear case, would be high temperature superconductors. Because you imagine if you could have some kind of substance which maybe doesn't use copper, but which is able to have superconductivity at room temperature, then you'd have zero loss in these cables that would go out to the wind farm. So in other words, 100% efficiency in transmitting the power from the wind farm to the places where it's used. And that would, at a stroke, 
completely remove the demand for a lot of copper. Is that realistic, though? Or is that nuclear fusion, but for copper? Well, you know, it's one of these things where an advance can come along really quickly, often by accident. You know, <laughs> they'll be trying to make something else and, oh, look, it's a high temperature superconductor. And then you've got all these mines and they're worthless. But the other thing which could change things very quickly is if the chemistry of the batteries changed to be something like a ceramic, perhaps, which doesn't have such demand for copper, or maybe sidesteps copper altogether, well, suddenly a big source of demand could immediately disappear. I mean, I'm sick of wires in my life. Can we not just beam electricity over the air yet? Yeah, you can. I hate having to plug stuff in. You can. You can get these electric chargers where there's a kind of induction pad. But of course, inside the induction pad is a copper coil. Yeah, but it's got to be really close. So I want it to be like, <laughs> I'm just wandering around. My phone's just constantly charging itself. <laughs> <laughs> It'll come, I suspect. But you can get shaped electromagnetic fields which project over a longer distance. Lasers. The answer to everything in life is usually lasers. Laser. <laughs> <laughs> Freaking laser beam. <laughs> anyway, I thought the strategist did a very poor job there. I mean, it's interesting that Goldman Sachs did publish a research paper last year, literally called Copper is the New Oil. But they're famous for coming up with crazy commodity forecasts, usually for oil. Interesting. But also gold. I don't know why they come up with these crazy forecasts. I guess it's for clicks. The Goldman Sachs care about clicks, really. Yeah, yeah, the strategists <laughs> really? do. Yeah, oh, yeah, because if you say something completely run of the mill, I mean, who cares? But if you say gold's going to 2000, then, you know, people pay attention. The strategists themselves are kind of scored. So there's a kind of system where they get voted for by people on the buy side. Okay, to wrap up, shall we quickly run through other things that have been claimed as the new oil and then we can yes or no them very quickly? Okay. So semiconductors are the new oil because they have restricted supply, very geographically concentrated in politically sensitive areas such as Taiwan. And it's the key input for, you know, pretty much everything has a semiconductor in it now. So are they the new oil? No. <laughs> Robin says no. What's your reasoning? <laughs> Well, ultimately, you can increase the supply, can't you? It's not a finite resource. We can carry on making chips forever. It's just a question of, you know, what's the economics of creating them? Okay. And then there's some claims about other energy resources. So gas is the new oil because, yes, like oil, it's a fossil fuel and its supply is constrained and it's being weaponized by Putin. And it's the key national security weakness for Europe right now. And is this analogous to the 1970s oil embargo? So is gas the new oil? I'd say yes. I'd say that's a much more likely oil thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has all the same properties, right? Often it comes from the same oil fields. You know, they, they produce gas as well. So, okay, if you're saying gas is the new oil, how do we, we monetise this as investors? Well, you can buy gas futures. And as far as I'm aware, I mean, there were lots of people joking about when's the next gas ETF going to be created. I don't think there is one, as far as I know. If people do know of one, you can tell us, but uh, I'm not aware of one. And I've seen the one quite out there claim, which is that people are the new oil. If you don't believe the story around machine learning and artificial intelligence, then you're confronted with this problem that in the West, especially, and China, we have shrinking working age populations over the next 50 years. That's locked in, basically, by the birth rate. And if economic growth stays coupled to population then we're going to need to find a load of people from somewhere. So that's the new oil. Mm, I kind of like that one because it is finite and it is shrinking. But you can always create new people, apparently. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did it last year. Wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Would not recommend. <laughs> no, joking. It's been the best thing I ever did. 
At some point, your daughter's going to listen to this podcast. I'll make sure she does. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say we believe one of these stories, whether it's data or machine learning or copper, what's the best way for us as investors to back it in our fund portfolio? Right? We're not going 100% in on one of these things, are we? No way. <laughs> so this would be in your fund portfolio, as you say. So don't take too much of a risk with it. But for example, if you want machine learning, there are lots of thematic funds which give you access to that. And they buy companies which are involved in developing that technology. And similarly, there are various ones on cybersecurity. The only thing I'd say with these thematic funds is don't overpay for them because they have such a compelling narrative. The prices usually surge just as you'll hear about the theme. So after a crash, that's usually a good time to buy them if you believe in them. Also, the fees tend to be high because the narrative makes it more marketable, which makes people more likely to buy it, even if the fee's high. And some of the stocks are smaller stocks in there, aren't they? So there probably is higher trading costs for the fund manager. Yeah. So for example, if you go for clean energy, it'll buy companies like Vestas, which surged after the pandemic and then crashed. So just be careful about those small caps, which have this kind of crashy behavior, because you could end up buying into a narrative that quickly disappears as some new thing comes along. So just be careful, I'd say. Don't put too much capital into it. And usually a good time to buy is after a crash because it'll depress the price of everything. And I suppose for things like copper and other commodities, you've got two options really, don't you? You can literally buy the commodity itself, the futures or whatever, or you can buy the miners or the producers. And for retail investors, the futures are not really available. You have to buy a very large amount and often you have to be a sophisticated investor, i.e. very wealthy. You can get products that kind of track it, can't you? I mean, there are ETFs for single commodities, for example. Wisdom Tree offers a lot of them. And there are other ETF providers which provide other commodity exposure. So, for example, there's the USO Fund. That's the biggest oil and energy fund, I think, in the United States. That's been around forever. But it's quite difficult to get single commodity exposure. But that's probably a good thing. You know, diversified commodity exposure is probably good enough for most people. And that is actually the component of my fund portfolio, which has done incredibly well. Uh, so that was one of my victories. Are you still holding commodities or are you thinking of, you know, taking profits now? No, I've still got it. I think that the bull case for commodities is still pretty much intact as long as we have the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and as long as we have this kind of demand surge, which is ongoing. China's weakened it, certainly, but I think that'll just be a temporary blip. But I think the undersupply is something which is going to be around for some time for many commodities. Do you think this year, maybe oil is the new oil? If we've seen what's happened to prices everywhere. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think, you know, people kind of wrote off oil as a dying industry. You know, we've reached peak oil. It's no longer going to be around. Look at all these alternatives in the form of renewables. But the fact is, we're going to be living with oil for some time to come. And usually these industries which are in decline can still be very profitable if they're managed correctly. So it really depends on how people manage the kind of transition from fossil fuels to renewables. And a lot of these energy companies will become renewable energy companies if they survive. So they're all trying to undergo the transitions themselves. I think that's why a lot of them like hydrogen, because it's the same concept. You know, you have a liquid which you pump into your car or your truck, and you need the kind of infrastructure of service stations rather than plugging it in at home, which really would be the end of that kind of infrastructure. Some people think that commodities should form part of your portfolio because it diversifies your other investments. We often discuss topics such as these in PensionCraft. So if you do want to learn more about different types of asset class, you can learn more about our membership by going to pensioncraft.com.
Okay, in today's dumb question of the week, we're asking why and how did oil prices go negative in 2020? So there was a day, I think it was April the 20th, 2020, when the price of crude oil fell below zero. And not just below, well below zero. It went to minus $38, which on the face of it is kind of crazy. So if you were an owner of oil, you had to pay someone to take it off your hands. Robin, can you make sense of this for me? Of course, Michael. So, <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> I made a whole video about it, but it didn't get many views, I have to say, which I found surprising. I just watched it again and I thought it was pretty good. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay, go and check that out. <laughs> but the idea was that when you buy something, when you pay a price for it on a financial market, there are different types of prices. So there's a spot price. So if you and I wanted to exchange a barrel of oil, you'd pay me the spot price. So I'd give you $100 and you'd give me a barrel of oil. Could give you a bottle of olive oil. Well, that would be handy. Yeah, very substitutable. There is a shortage right now. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But the way most commodities are traded, certainly by institutional investors, is via the futures market. And this is an incredible way to get really nice price discovery. And the reason why is because of fungibility. So what is a fungible contract? Well, it's a way of standardizing the trading of a certain thing, right? So if you look at a futures contract, it tells you where the thing's going to be delivered. So there's physical location, when it's going to be delivered, at what point in the future, the quality of the thing that's being delivered. So for oil, it'll tell you the sulfur content, the viscosity, all these physical properties will be specified in the contract. I think this was for sweet light oil, I read, if that's a thing. Yes, yeah, sweet light crude is the contract that went negative, which I used in the video. And if you look at the futures contract on April the 21st, and you look at the May contract, so the May contract expired on that day, on April the 21st, that's when the price went negative. And it was only the front month contract for delivery in May at Cushing in Oklahoma. And the price went to something crazy like minus 40 or even minus $47 per barrel. But even the next day, the price is normalized. So if you look at the June contract, which is the next expiry, the May one had gone, the price was about $12, $11.57. So is the basic story here that we were at the very early stages of the pandemic. Everyone was scared. There was lockdowns. So economic activity was so suppressed that people thought, oh, is anyone going to need oil? And at the same time, in this place, which you tell me is a real place, Cushing, Oklahoma, <laughs> their capacity for storing oil was so squeezed, like the, what do you call somewhere you store oil? The kind of tanks? They are tanks. If you actually look in Google Maps, you can see the tanks in Cushing really stand out. It looks like kind of measles or chicken pox on the landscape. That's why it's called a spot price. <laughs> so these tankers were so full that people were just going to be stuck with all this oil. Yeah, so imagine you're in a position where you're going to have to receive oil. So you've bought a futures contract and you're going to take physical delivery. Well, then the question is, where am I going to put it? And of course, in a futures contract, the place where it's delivered is specified. So this would have been in Cushing. And the actual storage facilities were almost at capacity. So big fall in demand. At the same time, you're having to take delivery. There's nowhere to store it. Well, if you'd have bought those contracts, you'd be trying to get rid of them. So you don't want to take physical delivery, so you wanted to sell the contract. Oh, I wish all these people had had to take physical delivery, just like in their <laughs> shed, just like tons of oil. 
But that was a problem. You know, they didn't want to take delivery. They wanted someone to take it off their hands. So the front month contract was the one which went negative because it was for immediate delivery at that point in time. Once the glut was effectively worked through the system, everything went kind of back to normal. But this was a really nice example of super contango. 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 It's great. So the idea here is that because you can have the date of the contract specified in a futures contract, so there'll be one for May, June, July, August 2020, what you can do is look at the shape of the prices. And usually what happens is the prices increase if they're further out in future. So that's called contango. And then when there's a huge demand for physical oil, which exceeds supply, there's a big demand for the front contract, the one just one month in the future, and the whole curve shifts into what's called backwardation, where you know the one-month contract is worth much more than they say 13-month contract. But this was a crazy example of super contango because the short end went massively negative, and then the contracts further out were still you know very positive. So it's kind of like a yield curve inversion, but for oil futures in a way. Yeah, and it's one that we'd never seen before, you know, super contango. I mean, I think the price of oil had never gone negative before, probably in like the millennia that we've been using oil. (laughs) But it was only the futures contract. And if you actually look at the price at which it settled, it was positive. So when people actually, you know, exchanged oil for money, the price was positive. It was small, but it was positive. I think the commodities exchanges were warning in the run-up to this that the price could go negative. But then there was an interesting case, which is kind of ongoing, where there's allegations that certain traders based in Essex, actually, just outside London, pushed it more negative than it actually would have and should have been to profit. Allegations. Yeah, apparently they made about $700 million in just a few hours because of this negative price. They were kind of doing a weird like arbitrage almost, weren't they? So the actual trick itself was based on something called trade at settlement. So let's say that you agree to buy or sell a future wherever it ends up at the end of the day. Now, obviously, you're taking a risk. So the example given in this brilliant Bloomberg article about it is that a trader sees that WTI is at $10. He thinks it's going to go down to, say, $5 at the end of the day. And so he buys, say, 50,000 barrels in the TAS market, the trade at settlement market, so that he'll buy it, say, $5 at the end of the day. So at the same time, allegedly, this person would sell regular futures as the price gradually decreases. So if he sells a lot, then he's pushing the price down. So as you get closer and closer to the end of day, the trader would accelerate their selling and eventually he'd be flat. So he'd have sold the same number of futures intraday as he'd bought in the TAS contract. So he'd be flat overall. But would have pushed the price to such a point that he's made a big profit. Yeah. And the profit was just incredible. So that's how they made almost $700 million in a single day. So effectively, what he's done is he's ended the day flat. He has no oil exposure. He'd been selling at a high price. You sell the futures at a high price. And he'd be buying at the end of the day at a low price. So effectively, you make money at both ends. Yeah, let's see how the court case plays out. I'm interested. I'm going to follow the story, mainly because the selection of characters in there, if you read that Bloomberg piece, are incredible. It's like the only way is Essex, but for oil markets. I think it's really interesting. I'm I'm really looking forward to the Netflix documentary about that. This is right up your street, isn't it? Star Trek, naval history battles, and the only way is Essex. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a big tally watcher, I've got to say. (laughs) 
Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Keep sending us your questions at mhr at pensioncraft.com and we'll tackle them in the coming episodes. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.